0: Hello, and welcome to the Public Health Power Hour. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy, Advocacy, and Communication at Vital Strategies.
1: And I'm Sandy Mullen, the Senior Vice President of Policy, Advocacy, and Communication at Vital. Public Health Power Hour is a podcast about how the world around us shapes our health and what we can do to make public health for everyone, by everyone. Whether the issue is air pollution, the marketing of unhealthy products by big corporations, gender and racial inequity, overdose prevention, or maternal mortality and access to reproductive rights, Power Hour brings together thought leaders to discuss public health's biggest challenges and how we can affect change.
0: And in this special episode, we're featuring some of our favorite moments that resonated with so many of us to illuminate why the ideas that stood out are an important part of discussions we are having in public health right now. So, Sandy, let's get started. The first episode I wanted to highlight was episode 14, titled "What If Public Health Fueled Social Reform Movements?" and we were joined by Dr. Celine Gounder, Shelley Hearn, and Daniel Goldberg, and it was hosted by our very own Daniel Cass, who asked about the role public health could play in social reform movements and where politics fits into the bigger picture. We have this great clip of Dr. Celine Gounder sharing some of her insights.
2: I do think it's important to distinguish political from partisan, but I think, you know, when you're talking about the distribution of scarce resources, um, which is very much what public health tackles among other issues that is inherently political. You can't get away from that. And there are, um, values that, um, determine how resources are, are, um, allocated, what is emphasized, what is prioritized. Um, so, um, whether you call it values or political, um, you know, I, I think you can't get away from that. Now, what might that look like? Um, you know, as as Bill Fage, who was one of the leaders of smallpox eradication, a former CDC director, has said, the philosophy of public health is to protect the most vulnerable and to emphasize um those safety nets. And So I think, you know, that is um, remains really the philosophy of public health. Um, And and so that should be how we structure our our thinking with public health. uh, Your patient is the population. And so where are you going to have the greatest impact? It's really on focusing on on the most vulnerable where you're going to have the greatest um, incremental impact.
0: So. That was just, it was a great clip from a fascinating discussion. And for me, one of the things that stuck out in this Ed Yong article was the emphasis of public health's transformation over decades into kind of technocratic discipline. And, you know, my personal experience, as you know well, is grounded in government and policy change. And personally, I've always come from the place where sausage is getting made. And for me, COVID has kind of responded reminded us that public health is always political. It's always about priorities and resources. And, you know, the Supreme Court decision on Roe here in the United States also underlined that. So I really appreciated that Shelley Hearn talked about the importance of building that skill into public health professionals and into the next generation of of public health professionals. Because, you know, if we have this aspiration to be bigger and better and stronger at public health, it also means learning to pull levers, like increasing people's demand to be protected. I was wondering if there were things that stuck out on this episode for you. Did that also ring true for you?
1: Yeah, it, you know, it sure did. This This was one of my favorite podcasts uh, of the season, I suppose. Um, and I really loved the way I think Dan Goldberg really brought the conversation back to the social determinants of health and just talked about the kind of rise in what he called medicalization of health over the past well, since the, a lot of the 20th century and and how we essentially have stopped merging social movements with uh, with steps forward in public health so that people think more about clinical care, uh, getting people into doctor's offices once they're sick already, and they're not thinking enough about how to prevent people from getting sick in the first place. And I really thought this, this particular podcast really brought me back to my own roots in in, uh in activism and in social justice and 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 Steve I was thinking about how you and I both began our careers in a at the New York public interest research group and 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 that work I think really put us really up close to people who are really struggling with everyday issues and really brought us into uh into a space where we could see community organizing and how much advocacy and pushing for social change really matters and can matter and I think we need to see more of that Back in public health. And I, I really appreciated this conversation because I think there was a real desire to get to some of these root causes of how we got into this mess.
0: I agree with you. You know, what's so interesting about this conversation and this question is when you meet people who work in public health and you ask them why they got started in the first place, inevitably mm-hmm. they have this story about, I saw that you know one person was suffering and realized we could prevent suffering at a much larger scale it always re- it always reads like that and then when you meet people unfortunately decades later sometimes they've been almost relegated to scientific studies or to pushing out data and they're not connecting with that original value of public health as much as they want yeah. some of them feel constrained you know mm-hmm. by the fact that they're publicly financed or maybe they've been told you know that they have to remain professional, and in this case, that means you know, don't talk about the larger political and social context. So right. that re- this episode, I'm with you. This really brought that up for
1: me. Yeah, and I think I think it was in this in this podcast where, or maybe it was a different one, but I still think it's a it's a it's a theme that that a lot of discussion about equity and health equity and the term that Paul Farmer framed phrased which before his untimely death, which was global health equity. And I think that many of the folks in, in this conversation were really trying to bring, bring into the conversation, into the room, this, this notion of equity and, and a lot of self-examination around that uh, in terms of what public health is uh, doing uh, on the global stage and how it's working and, and, and making sure that we don't slip into this kind of savior role and make sure that we really work shoulder to shoulder with folks on the ground who really are the ones who should be self-determining the best steps forward for to improve their health. So um, I really uh, appreciated uh, everybody who sat around the table for this one. So shall we go to uh, another one of our episodes? And Sure. So I'd like to uh, highlight episode 12, which was about vaccine equity and lessons from the HIV-AIDS epidemic. And for this conversation, we had Greg Gonzalez Fatima Hassan, Maria Surungi Tassay, and I think you uh, you were the moderator for this one, Steve. So let's uh, let's let's try to get into it. So inequity is a theme uh, throughout so many of our uh, podcast series so far, and and want to play this clip for you by human rights lawyer and activist Fatima Hassan, who called the lack of access many African countries faced after contributing knowledge to the development of COVID vaccine. Uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And in this short clip, Fatima advocates for a fundamentally different approach. What we need is researchers to say to drug companies, no, you will not test your vaccines or medicines going forward in Africa until we are guaranteed equitable post-trial access. We did the trials for Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, AstraZeneca. We contributed to knowledge so that you could all benefit before us. We're still waiting for supplies, and we're not guaranteed sufficient supplies in the next two to three years. So, you know, there really has to be a reckoning with the pharmaceutical companies. You want to do your research in Africa, then something has to fundamentally change. So I just want to kick off by saying I I, I was so impressed with Maria in this conversation. She's somebody that I've worked with in Tanzania on maternal health issues. She's a prodigious tweeter and social media star. And what's, what's really impressive about Maria is that she really gets deeply into issues. She really understands public health and she really understands the political context. And she told the story that is still unbelievable of a president who's now since passed of his COVID denialism. And uh, I think three days they they acknowledged that there was something there. And then she said not only was he denying the existence of COVID, but it became taboo to say anything about it. Um, and people would just say that they have a runny nose or a cough and they wouldn't, would it wasn't even allowed to use the words COVID. and And that within the context of the continent having had such difficulty getting vaccine um, and I know that uh, Fatima talks about that so eloquently, really um, about the issue that didn't begin in COVID, but really showed just how ugly and unfair both big pharma are, as well as, um, as she mentioned, the four white men who are leading the the major pharmaceutical companies and and how the bottlenecks really prevented so many people from getting access to vaccine in Africa and therefore Uh, caused so many unnecessary deaths and illness in Africa. So what did you think of that episode, which you did a great job moderating?
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you fully. And in fact, at that point, we were also taking live comments. And one one of the commenters responded to Maria, who drew in this huge audience, more than 250 people listened live. She's awesome. Um, Said that why can't people acknowledge? Why can't we Africans do this for ourselves? And that really resonated for me and also resonates post this episode we've had. I mean, part of the reason Africa was able to be blocked um, by these multinationals is the racist idea that Africa doesn't have the technical capacity to produce vaccines, when in fact it does. I mean, one of the outflows of this Conversations like these is now W H O and others are highlighting and investing in Africa's technical capacity to produce its own vaccines, but you can see how the notion that Africa as a continent is completely you know underdeveloped has led to this you know really distressing situation, which still has not been resolved to this day. Um, it's but this episode was definitely um, came at a critical time and. Its themes really still resonate um, to this day. It's it's disturbing. It was really disturbing.
1: Yeah, and, and so much, so many similarities between HIV and the uh, the, the lack of vaccine access uh, for, for 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 everybody. Certainly, for too long, in the beginning of that uh, pandemic, but the ongoing delays uh, of of access to vaccines and. In parts, in many parts of the world, certainly Africa, um, it's still uh, uh, access to medicines in general is a huge issue in so many parts of the world, and and uh, we're just really uh, pleased to have had so many smart people really unpacking that issue and giving us um, much more insight, both from their uh, academic and uh, intellectual lives, but uh, just as importantly from their experience on the ground.
0: Yeah. And I just also wanted to add that it was another example of what's now becoming known as sort of the commercial determinants of health. And in our work fighting non-communicable diseases, we look at the impact of the tobacco industry and big soda and you know industrialized food and how that negatively impacts people's population health. And this was such a high profile case, and yet still nothing has been done. I also found that really dismaying, um, I mean, really receive global attention. And they have yet to unlock these companies, um, you know, patents, vaccine formulas yeah, and yeah, patents.
1: Yeah. So I want to get to an episode that I had the privilege of moderating. It was episode 18. We just did it recently. And we really looked at um, about race and racism in American public health. And we were lucky to have Linda Villarosa, who wrote a uh, a book that just came out recently called Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Health, and a a real titan in this kind of thinking uh, about racism and its role in public health, uh, and that is Dr. Mary Bassett, who is currently in the New York State uh, uh, Health Commissioner. So in this next clip, Linda recounts a story in Under the Skin that illustrates the unequal access to mental health services that black people experience in America and how this disparity is rooted in pervasive myths that continue to entrench structural racism in the U.S. healthcare system.
3: I think that one of the ways that we suffer from is from a lack of sort of mental health services for us as Black people. There are so few um, mental health care providers who are people of color, but especially Black. So once. Um, you know, seek help. Um, If you want to seek help, it's hard to find someone. Um, And it's gotten especially hard during the pandemic. I think the other thing is that the intersection of mental health and policing. And um, what I covered in my book was a very sad um, story of a friend of mine's brother who was dealing with bipolar disorder, who could really, I mean, really tried hard to get help, but instead was arrested. Was eventually killed by the police, and um, I I just think of, I know his mother really well. And when she was talking about it, she she was always afraid that something would happen to him. Um, and you know, she was in a support group with white parents, and you could see the white parents weren't worried about their kids being killed because they were mentally ill. Um, and she was always worried about that happening with her son. And I was very very struck by you know the pain of not being able to get the treatment, but then getting in trouble partially because of myths and stereotypes about us that already exist and are worsened once you have mental health. The idea that mm. instead of getting care and treatment, we need policing and we're dangerous. And I think that's one of the myths that impedes in us getting proper treatment and help.
1: So in our conversation about the the episode on uh, vaccine access and the lack of fair access in in Africa, it made me actually think about something that Linda wrote about in her book, which is about race correction and this idea that black people can withstand uh, uh, medical uh, issues or things like lower lung capacity. They, they can hold their breath longer, that they have different bodies than, than white people. And I can't help but think that when when people who who had vaccine companies are thinking about how to distribute their vaccine. There's an economic argument for it, obviously. Uh, But there's also this other kernel of, do do they think that people in Africa are going to be less susceptible to the ravages of something like COVID or HIV? Or is there some kind of cultural assumption going on in in these companies about who deserves their vaccine versus who doesn't? Um, I thought Linda's book really raised so many important issues, and I really uh, enjoyed reading it. What did you think, Steve?
0: It was fantastic. I mean, for me, what I thought was so powerful in this episode and in her book is boiling down how, you know, this racist notion that pervades particularly this country's history, but also globally, results in real world impacts in everyday life. So really making tangible that you know, black people are prescribed fewer painkillers because it's perceived that they have a higher tolerance to pain and that, you know, so many example after example of real ways that 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 people of color are suffering because the whole, you know, we have to helicopter up and talk about the fact that we are in a a system that's imbued with racism and that causes disparities. Um, But we also have to make it tangible and real because, um, at, at some point we can't, we're not going to just end racism or we will end racism, but it will take 50 or 100 years. But what I loved about this discussion, and particularly Dr. Bassett's involvement was this notion that there are things we can and must do now, and that they're very tangible. Um, and that their discussion of of, you know, really imbuing departments of health who are on the front line of discussion with actual tools to understand and diagnose and start to treat this, I thought was, yeah, you know, it's hopeful. It yeah. was hopeful. I th- I found hope in that.
1: Yeah, I did too. And I, I also loved Linda's uh, humility about her personal journey. And I think one of the things that we try to bring out in the folks who are in these conversations is what are their stories? How do they get to where they are today? What helped them along the way? What did they see along the way? I know that both uh, Dr. Bassett and Linda were um, were struck by the, the time they spent with Dr. Harold Freeman at Harlem Hospital where there was so much much more of a burden of illness among black people in Harlem. And they both really learned a lot from him. Um, but Linda discusses how when she first started out as a journalist, she was a personal care, sort of a self-help journalist writing for Essence magazine. And, and it wasn't until maybe five years ago when she first started studying public health that she realized that, wait a minute, these are not individual issues. These are societal. And, and and part of the societal issue is structural racism. And she even talked about how she wasn't sure if that word was going to be part of her book and then she decided to make it so. And And it's just extraordinary in, that in 2022, uh, there's still fear of what the repercussions of being forthright are about using words that perfectly describe what, what's going
0: on. I'm glad you brought that out. And I am glad that on this podcast, we try and ask people where they came from. And for me, you know, I know Linda and Dr. Bassett as these people who really deeply understand these issues. But to learn that they've made this personal evolution, you know, to place of much more competence and authority on race and and public health. Also gives me help hope because yeah. I feel stymied and yeah. you know, it's a difficult issue to to dig into and, mm-hmm. and I worry about my own what comes out of my mouth, my actions. And to see these people who are Titans have made this evolution really made me feel like, okay, you know what, I can really step forward as well.
1: Well, I think there, you know, a lot of mistakes will be made by by many of us as we as we go on this journey. I think the main thing is to be sincere and to, to really want to take these steps, especially as public health people, to be self-aware
0: mm-hmm. of,
1: of some of the biases that we carry into the work that we do. I just want to mention one other thing because this is tied to the excerpt that Linda, we played from Linda, which is that in the United States, uh, 84% of people who offer mental health services or psychologists are white and 4% are black. And this in part explains why African Americans are much more likely to turn to emergency rooms and and primary care physicians for any mental health services. and And I really think it's great that Linda brought out that as a, a another issue that that we have to face as a consequence of these social determinants uh, of 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 health and ill health and ill mental health, as it
0: were mm-hmm. so Sandy, another favorite episode was episode sixteen. What if women led public health? Our guests were Dr. Magda Robalo. Kathleen Sherwin, and Noeline Nabolivu. Um, And this next clip was taken directly from this episode, features Dr. Robolo speaking about how women from the global south can find a place in northern decision-making spaces for international global health organizations like in New York or Geneva and how we can help those women leaders contribute their vantage point in the gender equity discussion.
4: This is not going to be uh, a woman's battle alone. Uh, it has to be public, private women, men, boys and girls, we need to collectively join forces if we are going to change uh, the the, the status quo. Because currently, uh, men are leading, they are holding leadership positions, all the policies and uh, uh, instruments we are uh, producing or suggesting that be produced and talking about will not be implemented and will not become effective if men are not really coming on board as. Partners. But it's also important that women should not feel guilty uh, by highlighting um, important um, uh, road uh, progress that is made by uh, women leaders. I think uh, that doesn't mean that we are sidelining men. Uh, It is um, upfront to recognize that we can only do this collectively uh, hand in hand with men, but we really need uh, to see the men who are willing to champion uh, the cause of gender equity. Otherwise, it will take um, uh, several uh, centuries uh, in a more pessimistic uh, perspective uh, for us to reach um, the goal that we are aspiring to.
0: I thought this was a fantastic episode. Uh, And again, kind of like some of the previous episodes we've talked talking about, when you dip into a discussion like this with the real experts and they're really... able to pull out those nuggets of reality that you didn't know. I mean, um, Kathleen Sherwin sharing that peace treaties last longer when women are involved in the... So
1: memorable. So
0: memorable. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also the connecting sort of from the base of the pyramid, which is that women are the public health workforce, 70% or more around the world, and yet lacking in in terms of leadership. So really uh, forcing... Our audiences, us, to look from the bottom to the top. It's not only about women health leadership, although that's critical. It's also about how women in the workplace are treated, how public health jobs and healthcare jobs and care jobs are um, are treated. Those also relate to women in leadership. They don't have opp- women don't have opportunities for leadership when they're not when the, the conditions are there that hold them down and in the positions of service. So, yeah. It was really struck by this whole conversation. And
1: and and, and more poignantly to have a, a couple of women in this discussion from the global south giving their perspective because I think clearly there's a difference uh, in opportunities among women in the global north versus women in the global south and and to just have this unbridled conversation about their own experiences and really trying to give us a guide of how to how to take that forward. So, I think N- No said something that or, no, actually, I think it was Magda that said something like um, uh, th- thinking about getting to that table of decision making uh, that diversity is inviting people to the party and inclusion is inviting them to the dance. And I think this idea that you can't just play lip service to, in, to 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 diversity and trying to get women into leadership positions, but women from the global south, in particular, into into positions of leadership and power. But you really have to truly want to include them in in decision making that really can make have an impact and make a difference, whether it's in peace treaties or in any other realm. Uh, I think there's certainly a a, a lot of room, to, a lot of way to go forward on this. Um, the the other thing I r- recalled about this conversation um, is the importance of activism. Like I feel like sometimes we forget how important activism still is, and and uh, you know that, that that goes alongside these policy discussions and um, and bringing people together around these policy making tables. We still need people on the streets. We still need people doing. Uh, what folks have been doing in the climate realm a lot, and and Nolene uh, reflected on that a lot from her perspective in Fiji and Fiji in the Pacific, uh, that she really saw the impact of the fossil fuels uh, crisis on 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 people where she lives, and I remember her recalling um, the disobedience campaigns of scientists who were uh, literally plastering uh, Shell Oil with uh, academic papers uh, on the building or or the uh, Uh, the 45-year-old ecologist who lay down uh, on a highway to stop trucks from going through. and um, So that's the kind of energy that women think about and and bring to these discussions. They're not just thinking about top-down decision-making. They're thinking about how do we engage lots of people? How do we get a community to be involved? How do we really push the envelope in ways that traditional patriarchal thinking doesn't do? So I, I really enjoyed the, the incredible intelligence and, and creativity around that table.
0: Yeah, well, I'll let you in on a secret, which is when we were conceiving of this episode, we first thought of naming it, you know, women health beyond the uterus or and then because we we thought about, you know, so often in our field, you know, women and health gets confined to reproductive freedom, uh, reproductive rights and, and maternal health um, and family planning. Those are critically important issues. But women need to be present everywhere, everywhere where decisions are being made, everywhere where care is being given. And as you said, it's going to take activism to force people, um, force that to the table. Otherwise, you know, um, you know, powers that be or expediency or whatever it is will be happy to to, to not consider the larger issue of whose perspectives are are in leadership here. Sandy, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. And thank you for tuning in to listen, uh, to learn, and joining us on this journey to reimagine a world where everyone everywhere is protected by a strong, equitable public health system. Full episodes of conversations we featured in this talk are available on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe today so you don't miss new episodes. And follow us on social media to stay in the know and let us know your thoughts. On Twitter, we're at VitalStrat, and on Instagram, at VitalStrategies.